What's it thinking about, Miles? Oh, hey, Jay. I was just wondering what happened to Bloodstream and Roughhouse. You mean the Wolverine villains? Well, let's see. Uh, Roughhouse showed up in All New Wolverine relatively recently. He was working with Kimura, but Gabby duped him into letting her escape so she could rescue Laura. So the two of them aren't working together anymore? Gabby and Laura? Yeah, they totally are. No, no, no. Bloodstream and Roughhouse. God, I can't believe they broke up. It's okay. They got back together to try to kill Wolverine, um, Logan Wolverine, after he lost his healing factor. But yeah, they had been apart for a pretty long time. That's sort of disappointing. It was for them, too. Bloodscream in particular, he hooked up with a lot of villains, but nothing ever quite stuck. Who do you work with? Oh, let's see. There's Belasco. Uh, Black Tarantula, that's before he went heroic. Oh, and uh, he also worked for Hydra for a while. Ugh, yuck. I know, right? That's low even for Bloodscream. Oh, and uh, for a while he was teamed up with Albert and LCD. Albert and LCD? Uh, they're this pair of androids Donald Pierce built to kill Wolverine. Okay, so like Reavers? No, they're androids, not cyborgs. Well, um, they're super smart, weaponized, sentient androids that can reasonably pass as human. Or at least I guess Elsie could. What about Albert? Not so much human, since technically he was a doppelganger of Wolverine. Takes a Wolverine to kill a Wolverine, I guess? Actually, no. Albert was the bait. Uh, he was just meant to lure Logan to Elsie. Okay, what was her deal? Well, she was this adorable little girl in a pink dress. I'm not seeing the danger here. Who was super smart. Okay. And rigged to explode. What? I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 197 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to Adamantium Rage! Or at least a lot of stories about Wolverine that are kinda weird. I mean, one of them is really, really great. I'm, I gotta say, so we, we each um, did primary outlining responsibilities on, on one of the two, and Miles got the fun one, and I'm really jealous. I mean, you said you didn't care which you took, so I allowed myself a brief moment of selfishness. Ah, honkers of doom, though. I mean, I guess we could come up with something that would be a better episode title, but I can't think of what right now. It's true. It's true. Okay, so before we uh, jump into the Wolverine books, there's something I want to talk about, and I don't know if I've brought it up on the podcast before, but it just occurred to me again, because we did our usual introductory pattern. You know, I'm Janet, I'm, I'm Miles Stokes. It's my name. So a couple people have mentioned here and there that they thought my name was different than it was. They thought it was Miles Dokes or even Miles Tokes or something like that. Um, the problem here, my first name ends with an S. My last name starts with an S. It's hard even when you've been saying it literally your entire speaking life to get that pause across. And if you do, it sounds all artificial. It's not that hard. Miles Stokes. I don't know why it's easier for you. For me, I've been doing it for, you know, 30-something years. I do vocal warm-ups before we record. I guess I could try that. Uh, what do you use? Well, I've got a collection of tongue twisters and, and normal vocal warm-ups, but lately I've actually found something that works a little bit better, and I can send you a link. Um, I don't remember which university has it serialized online. You might also have a print copy. Uh, wait, what, what is this? So I usually just basically open Finnegan's Wake to a random page and read it aloud. That sounds like hard mode. It's weirdly effective, because you can't really skim ahead. You have to actually sound things out because of the way it's written. 
um, which forces you to slow down and then um, basically warm up articulators because you're not just saying words that you can say on road. Okay, so it's sort of like when you're learning to draw and if you're trying to reproduce something, you uh, look at it upside down because then you can't like fill in the blanks with your imagination and your uh, your memory and your your sort of schema. It's more like if you're learning to draw, you look at something upside down after you've dropped acid. Right. I, my drawing one class did not teach me that. Maybe that was drawing two. But the point is, if you can clearly articulate Miles Stokes while on hallucinogens, you can definitely do it sober. Okay, well, life goals. We'll see what we can do, and we'll see if listeners uh, understand what my name is more. Yeah, all I've got going is the, the vowel on vowel, which isn't too bad. But for now, someone who has neither situation, Logan. Exactly. So, today, we're going to be covering two Wolverine special editions. Like Excalibur, Wolverine didn't have annuals. His book had special editions for a while. I mean, I think eventually there were some annuals. Eh, who knows? Well, I know of five of the special editions, at least. There was The Jungle Adventure, which was came out in 1989, uh, Bloodlust, which is 1990, Bloody Choices, 91, Inner Fury in 92, and Killing in 1993. I really love putting all those names right next to each other because the jungle adventure sounds like some kind of a giant boy detective novel by comparison to the rest. Oh, it really does. It kind of feels like one, too. And then everything else is like the world's most generic Sylvester Stallone vehicles. Okay, okay. I agreed. God, I'm imagining Stallone playing Logan, and I mean, I guess he could. Seems boring. Yeah, I don't know, man. I... Wasn't, wasn't, at, at some point, wasn't someone pushing for Glenn Danzig to play Logan? No, but it's surprisingly easy to picture. I swear to God I remember this from one of those Wizard Magazine, Let's Dreamcast the X-Men, and it's after Star Trek The Next Generation started, so Patrick Stewart is always Professor X, but otherwise it's just whoever's been in the news in the last two weeks. Dreamcast the X-Men. I don't think they had a game on that console. But anyway, so we have these two stories. We have The Jungle Adventure and we have Bloody Choices. Now, Jay, you mentioned you liked one much more than the other, and I would agree. The question is, do we go in the order they came out or some other order? Yeah, I think we should start with Bloody Choices. It's technically the later one, but it's also kind it's it's also the less awesome one, and I want to be able to just revel in the jungle adventure. That seems entirely reasonable. So, Wolverine Bloody Choices. So, Wolverine Bloody Choices is technically Marvel graphic novel number 67, although this was long after they stopped numbering those. It was written by Tom DeFalco with line art by John Buscema and colors by Gregory Wright. Um, Buscema, as you might remember, was the first artist on the Wolverine solo series. So he is in familiar territory here, and he does a fairly solid job. DeFalco, on the other hand, I mean... Choices were made, and and he they're trying so hard to make this a Wolverine conflict of fundamental nature, man versus the beast inside story. But ultimately, it's really basically just about difficult grown-up choices, which Wolverine frames as man versus the beast inside because he is a teenager, and so everything is about his epic inner torment. I mean, to be fair, he's Wolverine, so everything is about his epic inner torment. Well, no, I mean, he's not a teenager in this. It's just that Wolverine is an eternal teenager. Well, yes. Anyway, in this case, he is being an internal teenager somewhere in Hawaii on what I know is June 11th because it is Kamehameha Day. Right, yeah, I, I saw that. And of course, my brain went, as I'm sure it did for many who are in a certain age group, to Dragon Ball Z because that's the only place I'd heard that. Not me because I've never seen it. I just had the entire series summarized for me at great detail in a hotel room once. I'm so sorry. No, it was amazing. Um, it, was, it was really, really brilliant. It was, it was on the last day or right after a convention 
in Emerald City and I was exhausted and it was like the perfect sort of semi-conscious state to, to hear all of this. But anyway, the, the real person was, was the first king of United Hawaii and there's an annual festival named for him that's largely about celebrating Hawaiian history and culture, uh, which Wolverine has a lot of sort of vaguely shitty and derisive comments on. So screw that guy, man. I kind of wonder, so we just covered Brood Trouble in The Big Easy, and in that, the X-Men were in New Orleans, and it was, of course, Mardi Gras. And I think we mentioned at the time that it's like almost every anime takes place during cherry blossom season. This is kind of new. Like, I could, it would almost make a little more sense if Kamehameha Day was more known, but it's kind of obscure if you're not in Hawaii, from what I can tell. Yeah, and it's definitely not something we see as ubiquitously in Hawaiian-based media and stories. I say as if I have seen many movies based in Hawaii that aren't Lilo and Stitch, but I've seen that a lot of times, which I assume sort of balances it out. There's Hawaii 5.0. It's got a really catchy theme song. That's the main thing I remember about it. Does it involve anyone putting spoons in a pickle jar because their friends need to be punished? I mean, I haven't seen all the episodes, so maybe. Eh. Well... Anyway, bloody choices. The point is, Logan is in Hawaii, there's a holiday that's not terribly relevant, and then... And then, Wolverine follows the sharp scent of fear to a young boy sneaking through the crowd with a gun concealed in his shirt. The kid is trying to kill a man named Mr. Bullfinch, a portly gangster with a comb over and a white suit who's currently dining with his attorney, it's Mr. Capelin, it's gonna come up again later, and a large man who looks like he's cosplaying Wolverine. Okay, so before we get to that third person, who's the one I suspect we both have by far the most to say about, I want to talk a little bit about how Mr. Bullfinch is portrayed, because he's going to end up being the villain of this story. He's going to end up being a particularly despicable villain. And that's a shame, because one of the things I like about John B. Sama's art is that he draws a variety of different body types really interestingly, and he does great body language to go along with them. And this is where we run into a comic trope that kind of sucks, which is that, you know, you can have all these different types of body types, but then you have the character who's very fat and they're almost invariably a villain. And I would love to see that kind of body diversity going through more roles. It would feel like a more realistic, varied world. Yeah, and with an artist as competent and as adept as Bushema is at representing that kind of range of bodies, there's really no excuse for not doing that. I mean, I think the main excuse is that it was the early 90s, and I don't know, the past was terrible. Okay, there's no good excuse. It would, Yeah, that's something that it would be really, really nice to see more of, and that's a shame uh, that we, we see through here. I think, I think the, the range that's available, at least in this comic, is either villain or comic relief, and neither is a particularly good place to end up. Bullfinch is really terrible, man. He is, he, is a, he is a bad person, but he does have a very, very sharp suit. But speaking of both villains and comic relief... Okay, we got to talk about this third guy because holy crap, Jay. I mean, I, I mean, wow. First of all, we're not going to find this out for a while, but this man's name is Shiv. So his name is Shiv. He's involved with Wolverine. Put an A on the end of his name, give him some excessively spiky armor, and you've got Shiva. Maybe they're connected. Probably not. But his hair. So he's got Logan's hair. You know the thing where the hair goes up into two points? On Logan, I don't know if it looks good just because we're used to it or because of some other ineffable factor, but it looks fucking hilariously dumb on Shiv. Right, he's one of three characters at this point who's rocking the style because Beast is too, but on Beast it looks good because Beast is blue and furry and he can basically pull off whatever the hell he wants to do. On Logan, we're used to it and it's part of what we've come to accept as sort of the cartoonish aspect of his appearance. Yeah, on Shiv, it's ridiculous. Shiv is also, like, a good foot taller than Logan, which 
what he looks like is a tall dude cosplaying Wolverine. Well, a tall dude cosplaying Wolverine with a really strange mustache. So the only way I can think of to describe it, it's like if you took the Hitler slash Charlie Chaplin mustache, you know, the little one that just goes straight down from your nose, and inverted it. So it's the parts to the side of that, but not the part in the middle. So he's also got ears that are occasionally Vulcan pointy, but not always. And there are a number of characteristics, including the facial hair, and actually weirdly including the ears that to me read as very, very much being like early Hollywood racist Asian coded. I mean, yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but now that you mention it, I can kind of see it. He looks a little Japanese maybe, which since it's set in Hawaii could kind of make sense, but then later on a familial uh, relationship with Logan is implied. So I'm not really sure what they're going for, especially given the foghorn leghorn southern accent this dude has. Yeah, Shiv has a lot going on, and I stand by my Wolverine cosplayer theory. Um, He also exclusively wears turtlenecks, which somehow makes the whole situation much, much funnier. Maybe that's what doesn't work. Maybe if we ever saw Logan in a turtleneck, we would just laugh at how dumb his hair was. Maybe the only thing between him and utter derision is the type of collar he wears. We've seen him in turtlenecks, and he pulled it off. I think they were generally like black turtleneck sweaters, but... Hmm. Well, he doesn't look as good as Nightcrawler in a turtleneck because no one does. Yeah, I was going to say, or in a sweater in general. I No one looks, he doesn't look as good as Nightcrawler, and we can just sort of leave it there. But that's an unfair standard to hold anybody to. True. Neither of us looks nearly as good as Nightcrawler. And, you know, I'm comfortable with that, because I've come to terms with the fact that I will never achieve that genuinely unreasonable beauty standard that has been left in my head by popular media. Anyway, we have so much Hawaiian terribleness to get through, we should probably get back to it. Shiv and his likeness sets up one of two of the by-the-numbers aspects of this story. Namely, Wolverine's mysterious past, the other will be the internal conflict of man versus beast, um, which we'll get to a little bit later. Anyway, the kid shoots at Bullfinch, misses, uh, cosplay Wolverine throws a knife, but Logan's able to tackle the kid fast enough to save his life. Um, then he takes takes the kid to a no-questions-asked local clinic run by a sleazy Doc Corbel. There they discover that the kid is covered in scars. It turns out Bullfinch did it, and he's still got the kid's brother, Paolo. Wolverine decides that he's going to go for vengeance. He's going to save Paolo. The kid who he saves initially never gets a name. Well, Wolverine first heads back to his hotel, presumably to take a good look at himself in the mirror and say, does my hair look like that? It does, Logan. It really does. He doesn't have too much time to focus on that, though, because he gets a note from a mysterious stranger... And the handwriting on this, Jay, in your outline, you described it as high school girl handwriting, and you are not wrong. Yeah, I really want the eyes to be dotted with hearts, and I want the eyes to be dotted with hearts even more when I found out whom it was from. The note is is packaged with a cigar, and the note reads, um, a wise man keeps his nose out of other people's business. Okay, I'm just gonna spoil this. How the hell does Nick Fury have a job? I mean, these days, he he doesn't. Or I guess he has, like, an extra, extra job because he's just hanging out on the moon narrating Exiles. Does he have hobbies? Does he, like, knit a lot? Hmm, maybe. Uh, He doesn't play a lot of VR games, I'll tell you that much. But seriously, this is the worst menacing note, and Wolverine agrees. Treating cigar and warning with exactly the same deference? I set fire to both. So does he also smoke the note? I would assume so. I mean, he's got a healing factor. I'd imagine he smokes basically everything he encounters. And, you know, I gotta say, so this is, this is, I don't know that I would call this a good comic. It is well drawn. It has some compelling moments. 
It has dialogue that is, um, it's got a lot going on there. Okay, I unabashedly love the dialogue in this comic. It doesn't sound like the Logan that we're used to, true, but it's just so, like, hard-boiled to the hard-boiled power. It's just, it's unnecessarily, like, if you boil something that much, what even happens? Does it turn into a new state of plot matter? I think it just turns into British pub food. No, oh, well, uh, that may be true. In that case, British pub food is kind of witty. Speaking of pubs, once Wolverine's done smoking, he heads to a bar to do some recon, and he has a fantastic conversation with the bartender. What'll it be? Beer and chatter for a chaser. We sell drinks here. Yeah, and supermarkets sell canned peas, but that don't stop him from pushing toilet paper. True enough. <laughs> I what? Just, I love it. It doesn't have to make sense because it sounds like there's some kind of a metaphor you're just not getting, so you just say... Yeah, okay. I mean, the other guy seems to take Logan seriously, so I guess I'd better, too. Uh, listeners, the look on Jay's face right now, because we do video chat as we uh, record, it's it's about what you'd expect. I just... Man, I'm just trying to think of situations in which it would make any sense for anyone to talk like this, and all I can come up with is, like, two people from two different secret societies, each using their own secret society's code phrases, trying to determine whether the other's an agent, and they don't quite match up. My hovercraft is full of eels. That is just bad translation. Eh, well, maybe this is too. Anyway, so Wolverine, while he's at the bar, learns a bit about Bullfinch's business, what he's doing. There's some drug smuggling he's doing out of a fleet of freighters. Also, he's uh, kind of a child molester, apparently. Well, Wolverine found that out um, back at the clinic. Uh, it, it's never explicit in any of the conversations, but we can just assume that maybe we missed part or um, Wolverine was able to figure some stuff out via his Wolverine-iness. Anyway, he sneaks on to one of the freighters that's that's the base of Bullfinch's drug-running operation, and he finds a lot of coffee with, with packets of cocaine hidden inside and is immediately ambushed by guards. Is that like that thing where you can um, brew certain sour beers and like whiskey barrels to sort of take on the flavor? Is this cocaine that, you know, just wakes you up in the morning a little bit more? I mean, I guess cocaine normally would. I've, I've never done cocaine. I don't really know. Yes, Miles. It is artisanal coffee-infused cocaine. Kona coffee-infused cocaine specifically. Okay, well, I mean, at least Bullfinch, uh, you know, has good taste in one regard, I guess. I don't know. I don't even know. I have no frame of reference for how you do cocaine right or wrong. Or coffee, or unless you've started drinking it in the last year. I mean, I get dirty chai occasionally. That's got coffee in it. But before we continue plot-wise, so the scene transitions from one facing page to another, from the bar to the shipyard. And there's a, a certain colored cast to each side. The bar's got this sort of sickly yellow cast to it that makes it seem even more seedy in addition to what the dialogue, the confusing dialogue, gives us. And the outside nighttime scene at the docks is this nice blue. It really, really works. I think it really adds to just the variation of the settings here. I mean, yes, it's all in Hawaii. It's all in a specific part of Hawaii. But it's nice to see those different feels, those different almost tones for the scenes. Wolverine gets away from the guards by cutting through the side of the ship, swims his way to the shore, only to find Nick Fury waiting for him at the docks. That's right, the, the note was from Nick Fury, as was the cigar, I guess. Hmm, his penmanship is quite nice. Yeah, and the two of them start their conversation by insulting each other's outfits. Wolverine is at this point in his full Wolverine uniform, and then, while Wolverine is still in the uniform, head to a bar to catch up. My favorite part of the outfit insults is Nick Fury giving Logan shit about his patch identity and the thought that anyone would ever believe it. Every time that happens, it makes me smile inside. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, I also, speaking of Wolverine and his, his fashion choices, Wolverine just wears his costume fucking everywhere, which I am half convinced he does just as an excuse to get into more bar fights. I knew a guy who would always go to pool halls wearing pink pants. He called them his karate pants for that reason. And in fact, Wolverine wearing his, his karate outfit uh, gets what he bargained for and immediately enters a confrontation with a local palooka who tells him, you got a lot of brass coming in here dressed like that, runt. Who are you supposed to be, a cheap imitation of the bat guy? Nah, I'm just a darker, grittier version of the Easter Bunny. Here's an egg for ya. And he punches him. I I think Logan talks like this for the same reason? I I, I don't know, man. It's 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 a lot. It's it's definitely a lot. Anyway, Wolverine wants to kill Bullfinch because Bullfinch is a child molester and a general jerk. Um, S.H.I.E.L.D., on the other hand, is about to bust Bullfinch for his drug trafficking, um, which is a pretty big deal. And Nick assures Wolverine that if Wolverine backs off, S.H.I.E.L.D. will make sure Bullfinch pays for all of his crimes. And this is going to tie into the general theme of the comic, and in fact, its title, Bloody Choices. I mean, do you go for the emotional cathartic payoff? Do you do the more logical calculating payoff? Uh, are you a man or a beast? Because, like you said, it's always about that. Or are you a darker, grittier Easter bunny? Which, again, it, it goes back to the secret society code phrases thing. Mm, good point. The Easter bunny flies at dawn. Now, Wolverine is kind of unimpressed with Nick's plan, so he goes to sneak into Bullfinch's compound on his own. He self-narrates because Wolverine is, is going, you know, hard grit, hard noir here, and obviously, as we all know, self-narration is a fundamental aspect of that. Walking along the pier, I keep seeing that kid's face. So young and full of fear. Images of another kid filter in. A wild boy who grew up untamed and fearless, relying only on his own feral instincts, simply because his mutant body contained a healing factor which could cure any injury. Uh, this particular memory will eventually turn out to be the precise opposite of Wolverine's actual canon childhood. Also, there is an illustration for it which is straight fucking bonkers and looks like it came directly out of some a, a magazine with a title like Boy's Adventure Magazine. Yeah, it's like this little kid, but he's got Wolverine's hair, and once again, that haircut looks dumb on almost everybody, including this child. Now, apparently, I haven't read Wolverine number 25, but he has a reminiscence about that same child, which is presumably him and that one, too. I should really check that out at some point. I think that this was a big Weapon X thing, and they just gave Wolverine childhood memories based on, like, boys' adventure periodicals from the 30s. I mean, I would actually read comics about those false memories so enthusiastically. That sounds amazing. Oh, unquestionably. Speaking of the hair, though, I feel like Clarion the Witch Boy pulls it off pretty well. It's not quite as extreme with Clarion, though, is it? Sometimes it's more extreme. Hmm. At least he has the devil horn theme going on, though, right? Kinda. I mean, it's it's basically the hair, same hairstyle, just, just, you know, more so. Hmm. Well, anyway, Logan is lurking in bushes when... He comes across Nick Fury, who is also lurking in the bushes. Based on this book, I sort of imagine Fury to be, like, the rough equivalent of Agents 13 or 44 from Get Smart. Now I'm just imagining Maxwell Smart's line done in Logan's voice, or Logan's lines done in Maxwell Smart's voice. Sorry about that, bub. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I can't quite do Don Adams. I guess I, oh, speaking of Chief, I guess he could also be, Fury could also be the, the Chief from Inspector Gadget. But either way, Don Adams ends up um, playing Wolverine in this scenario, which, you know, is, is, is definitely a thing. 
I was so blown away as a child when I realized that Inspector Gadget and Maxwell Smart had the same voice actor. I, I think I always knew that. Um, I don't remember there having been a time when I didn't know it. So I just sort of assumed that they were set in, in like variations on the same universe, that Inspector Gadget was sort of an, an alternate universe Maxwell Smart. Did they ever do a crossover? I mean, I don't know how they would, but maybe they should. I guess it's too late now. Not that I know of. Um, man... Now I'm thinking about the nude bomb and being kind of depressed. There was also, was it Get Smart Again that had young, uh, the child of uh, Max in 99? Yeah, but I didn't watch it because I'm a Get Smart purist and kind of an asshole. I did watch the nude bomb, which is so damn frustrating. It's like, it's, so it's the Batman Hellboy Starman of movies, <laughs> which is to say, <laughs> it's not, that's a terrible analogy, but it's got a great setup and a great premise and it's just a bad movie. Like it's not good and it doesn't feel like it's smart. Unfortunate, unfortunate. But uh, we should probably get back to Hawaii because again, there's still more narration and other such things. Sorry about that, chief. So anyway, Logan and Fury exchange some snappy banter as one does in Hawaii, when suddenly a window breaks high above and that nameless kid from before, yeah, his corpse flies out of it and smacks into the ground. Oh, I thought he was killed when he hit the ground. I mean, I guess it's kind of crappy either way. Yeah, he's definitely dead by the time Wolverine gets there, which is the salient detail. Um, and what that means is that Doc Corbel, the guy from the clinic, sold him out. Logan decides that it is time to storm the castle and Nick Fury concurs. Have fun storming the castle. Sorry about that, Chief. I actually really do enjoy Fury's change here because before he was all like, dude, Logan, we gotta shut down this guy's drug operation. I know there are a couple kids having horrible shit happen to them, but like the drugs he's distributing are doing more bad things. And at this point, the, the corpse hits the ground and he's like, you know what? Fuck it. This dude is going down. Because that's the thing with Fury. Like, he's a by the book dude for the most part, but he's still very, very good. No, he's not. Well, okay, compared to Logan. I mean... Not really. Okay, let me rephrase. In this story, he is significantly more by the book than Logan. How's that? Acceptable. Okay. All right, so... Unfortunately, the castle storming comes to naught because Bullfinch escapes to his private helicopter and Logan finds himself facing his tall doppelganger, who, as it turns out, is also super durable with an apparent healing factor and has retractable metal claws that look an awful lot like the kind that came with older Wolverine costumes, and calls Wolverine bro. So Shiv stabs Wolverine with the aforementioned retract retractable claws and escapes with Bullfinch. So I want to go back to the bro thing, because obviously what they're trying to insinuate is that maybe Shiv is secretly Wolverine's brother. That's, that's what's being implied here. That's the, the hypothetical Wolverine later explores. For me at this point, when a villain says bro in a comic, I go straight to the tracksuit Draculas. Yeah, totally. From Hawkeye, I do the same thing. Did you ever see that short fan film that somebody made that was like a, a five-minute live-action version of Hawkeye? I did, and it was lovely. It was. Like, it's kind of amateurish, but they just, they totally got the feel of the Fraction run, and it was wonderful. I feel like it should be kind of amateurish. That may be a very good point, actually. So, the bad guys having escaped, Logan and Fury go to plan their next move when suddenly, a phone rings. It's Bullfinch's lawyer, and Bullfinch wants to make a deal. Specifically, he will give them all his info on the cartel in exchange for immunity from prosecution. Wolverine is not down with this, even after Nick Fury points out that the cartel kills thousands of kids. And this is a really big get, and maybe Logan could look at the goddamn bigger picture for once. 
Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, it's certainly a sympathetic perspective that the child molester is a bad person and Logan wants to do bad things to that bad person. What I don't get, since Logan doesn't work for S.H.I.E.L.D. and does murders for fun anyway sometimes, is why he can't wait till S.H.I.E.L.D. gets the info and then go kill Bullfinch. Like, everyone's happy. Because he quivers with anticipation. Logan is not very good at delayed gratification. (sighs) I guess so. So S.H.I.E.L.D. sets Bullfinch up on a private island that used to be a World War II Japanese internment camp, and... Uh, to DeFalco's credit, there's some conversation from the random-ass S.H.I.E.L.D. agents about how a Japanese internment, internment was one of the most shameful episodes in the history of our government, which is nice. And this, this same dude is also legitimately pretty pissed off to be protecting an alleged pedophile. Fair and fair. Nick Fury, who is always pissed off no matter what, um, takes Bullfinch to the fancy underground S.H.I.E.L.D. installations for some Q&A. And what we learn is that apparently Bullfinch wants to get out of the cartel so he can retire in luxury, and apparently this is one of those, like, low-key friendly cartels that's cool with that? Huh. Wolverine, meanwhile, has gone after Doc Corbel, who turns out to have been supplying Bullfinch with kids, not only for Bullfinch's own, um, use, but which Bullfinch is then supplying to other quote-unquote enthusiasts, because this dude is, like, the worst squared. Boo. Here's where things get interesting, because Wolverine's about to kill Corbel, but Corbel offers him a deal. He's in exchange for his life. He's going to tell Wolverine where Bullfinch used to stockpile his merchandise, the other kids. And Wolverine hates this, unsurprisingly, but he goes for it. Again, I don't get why he couldn't have gotten the information and then killed Corbel. I mean, he was a samurai for a while. Maybe the whole honor thing is still in there with him. Yeah, but if the point is that these people deserve to die, like, which is is a a point he keeps on reiterating and reiterating and reiterating, like, he can have his cake and eat it, too. (laughs) Is it murder cake? Yes. Yes, it is. Anyway, Wolverine goes after the other compound, and I will never get tired of him emerging from bodies of of water like some kind of swamp monster. Or like someone from Apocalypse Now. Or like a swamp monster from Apocalypse Now. Huh, Apocalypse Now, starring Swamp Thing. I would watch that. But what I really enjoy here is his Tom DeFalco narration. The moon has not fully abandoned its eternal struggle against the encroaching dawn by the time I reach the island. Does it consciously choose to retreat before the start of the day? Or is it merely a creature of instinct? A puppet directed by subconscious primal urges? Okay, I get what he's going for here. He's making parallels to himself, but I just love super poetic, navel-gazing Logan. Like, I genuinely do. Okay, this version of Wolverine definitely, definitely has, like, a diary, and he definitely writes some, like, really dark poetry in it while smoking clove cigarettes. And, like, sometimes when he's in coffee shops, girls ask to see it, and he tells them he doesn't know if he can share it because it's pretty heavy. And the entire time, he has that dumb hair. Yes, the entire time he has that dumb hair. But alas, uh, the world is quiet here. The children are gone. What is at the private island, though, are Shiv and Bullfinch's lawyer. They have discovered that with Bullfinch gone, there's a lucrative market in children and drugs just waiting to be scooped up by some rough-and-ready entrepreneur. Boo! Yeah, they're really bad people. Well, the lawyer gets the hell out of there, leaving Shiv to fight Wolverine, which is, you know, a very well-done fight scene by John Buscema because he's very good at drawing basically everything. 
They, they fight for a while and Shiv throws Wolverine in the water and Wolverine reaches an important revelation in his internal narration. And in that instant, my heart screams the truth. The animal instinct which has guided me through all my days rips away the lie. We are not brothers. We never were. Armored with this knowledge, I spring to meet his attack. We are merely two men who share certain physical characteristics and a similarity of lifestyle. The half-formed memories he evoked were merely the maybes, the possibilities, the paths that other harsher choices might have taken in my life. Okay, first question. Is Logan implying that if he'd made different choices, he would have had a weird brother? That's not how it usually works, but sure. Second... Does Wolverine think he's related to everyone who has the same hairstyle? Him and Beast. I mean, they get along pretty well, so okay. No, I mean, I get it. I get what they're going for here. The idea is that if Logan had been less ethical, you know, less against working with child molesters, I guess. Basically, if he'd given in to the immediate gratification of the Beast a little bit more, maybe he could have ended up like a guy like Shiv. I think you are reading way, way more depth into this than is actually present or even particularly well implied. I don't know, though, because it just keeps harping on this theme over and over. Like, Shiv, when he stabs Logan, chooses to miss Logan's heart. And Logan chooses not to jump away because he thinks he wants to take the measure of this guy. Like, it just keeps coming back to that word. Yeah, they're playing choice. Well, it's, it's called bloody choices. I mean, choices. This is this is Wolverine having his own shitty choose-your-own-adventure adventure. But... <laughs> God, it is. Yeah, if you choose to, to cut Shiv's head off, turn to page 23. If you choose to embrace Shiv and call him bro, turn to page 42. If you choose to punch him a lot, turn to page 7. And if you choose any of those options, you wander into a cave and a random bear eats you. Those books were merciless. But you're Wolverine, so you get better. Oh, well, that's true. I guess that's just the justification for what you always do, which is just to go back to the last page you were on and choose the other one. Yeah, I mean, that's that's basically Wolverine. Oh my god, that's basically Wolverine's life. This would be brilliant. Like, if you did a Wolverine Choose Your Own Adventure novel, where the false, where, where like, the dead-end paths were actually, like, false-implanted memories... I kind of love this. I also just love redoing the old uh, story bit where Wolverine used to have to duel death. I think this was sometime in the early 2000s. Just replace it with choose-your-own-adventure options. Also, I just realized that I just described the plot of Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Wait, that's not how it happened. (laughs) Which I love, because, like, he's telling his own story, and he's like, and then I plummeted off a cliff to my death. Wait, no, I misremembered. (laughs) It's like, whoa, you are bad at telling stories, Prince. (laughs) Right. Anyway, back in this story... Back in this story, Wolverine rips Shiv's head off. No, he, he doesn't, but th- it really looks like he does for a pan- panel or so. But no, Shiv is alive, and in exchange for his life and freedom, he offers Wolverine, Bullfinch, and Palo. Um, that's that's the, the missing kid, the brother of the nameless dead kid. Um, the repetitions of this scenario would be slapstick comedy if it weren't about what it's about. Yeah, that's a tonal dissonance that I think is present throughout this story because it's sort of a fun secret agent over-the-top adventure, but then there's this dude molesting children, and uh, that makes it significantly less fun. Speaking of which, back on the island where Bullfinch is currently imprisoned, uh, Capeland, Bullfinch's lawyer, shows up to bring Palo to Bullfinch, which is super unacceptable to Nick Fury and also to every reasonable person ever. Jesus Christ, dude! 
Bullfinch points out that Fury knew what he was getting into, but... Ugh. Yeah, um... And at that point, Wolverine shows up and Fury evacuates the island except for himself and Bullfinch. And then Nick Fury and Wolverine have a very gritty showdown. Hi, Nick. I was hoping you wouldn't be here. I ain't exactly spinning cartwheels on the side of your ugly mug either. But imagine for a moment that he was. And Fury tells Logan, dude, it's over. We found Paolo. The kid's on his way to a hospital on the big island. Wolverine disagrees that this is an acceptable conclusion. Glad to hear it, Nick, but there's still some unfinished business. I'm real sorry you feel that way. Yeah, so am I. I'm glad that we've been able to communicate our respective feelings this way. This is an important milestone for us, as men, as friends, and as scrappy fellas. I've really been working on using more I statements. I've been trying to own my own emotions instead of projecting. Well, they fight for a while, or possibly just talk about their feels, and Logan just keeps going. Yeah, man, he, he internal monologues real hard through the whole thing, too. Fury doesn't realize how close to the edge he's dancing. I could easily use my claws on him, but that would put me in the same class as Bullfinch. Uh, it, it really wouldn't, Logan. For all his shield training and combat experience, Nick would just be another statistic to me. Another helpless victim. Wolverine, I, that's really... You know what? You know what? Never mind. You do you, buddy. Nick hits Logan with some knockout gas, which, of course... And that takes Wolverine straight to... The realm of the beast! The berserker within! And man, if you thought regular... Wolverine self-narrated like a mofo, you haven't met the Berserker yet because he keeps that running for like four straight pages. Uh, suffice to say, Wolverine is basically a super angsty eternal teenager who does not realize that he is not the only person who has impulse control issues and sometimes has to make choices where there's not a right answer. Like, he genuinely seems to feel that this is something that only he struggles with. So I wanted to get your take on one of the things that comes up in this, because I agree, we, we're already doing a lot of quotes, and we shouldn't just keep going with this one. There's so much. Logan talks about how he sees Bullfinch as sort of a mirror of himself. Bullfinch preys on the innocent, Logan preys on the guilty. They both need to do it, and they both need each other. Like, Logan needs monsters like Bullfinch to keep his own monster in check by unleashing it on said monsters. I think that Wolverine really likes to make his choices and his life sound a lot more dramatic and a lot more destiny-driven than they actually are. If this were third-person narration, I might buy it if it were coming from some omniscient voice of the author. From Wolverine, it really just sounds like a dude who is incapable of owning his decisions and really just wants to be a protagonist, a tortured protagonist, a tortured, morally gray protagonist like this 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 is this is a guy who's just read too much elric i mean you could do a lot worse than elric but anyway logan breaks out of his rage fury zaps him with a bioelectric zapper and there are some more feelings but the point is logan wins and goes after bullfinch now while fury and logan had been fighting bullfinch and caplin had decided to flee for safety. Uh, Kaplan, the former lawyer, has been promoted in the cartel. He's taking over Bullfinch's former position, plus a bunch of other stuff, so uh, good for him, I guess. That's kind of not the sort of promotion it's necessarily a good idea to be proud of because he's terrible, and this is like drug running and child trafficking. 
Yeah, I mean, drug running, overall not a fan. Child trafficking, no, 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 no. As, as befits his new position, the, the cartel had, had provided a speedboat for Capelin, but Capelin decides he's going to take the helicopter instead, and he offers the boat to Bullfish. Now, this is not charity. This is actually a cunning ploy, because Wolverine finds Capelin, and Capelin basically says, yeah, if you're going to catch Bullfinch, you better head out now, because he's at the other end of the island going for a speedboat. Which means that if he's going to get Bullfinch, which is his whole goal of being there, he's going to have to let Capeland, who's now rising to Bullfinch's previous position in the cartel and thus in a position to do way more harm than Bullfinch can at this point, go. So Wolverine grudgingly fights the helicopter, which blows up when he stabs it. Okay. But thankfully, he's able to chase down Bullfinch, who's like pleading for his life and insisting that he can't help the way he is and he needs understanding and he never meant to hurt anyone and he claws through a barbed wire fence and it pops one of his eyes out, it looks like. And this part, I didn't know how to feel about this part because the guy's a monster, but he's talking about how he just needs help. But I think it might be crocodile tears, but I, I just don't know. So I have some opinions about this, um, which are not really entirely germane to this story because everything in this is cartoonish. Um, but I sort of feel like there is a degree of harm after which your well-being no longer becomes the priority. Like this is this is the this is the conversation that keeps on happening around around me too and around men who have histories of abuse in in professional contexts in particular. And, you know, what if they reform? And I feel really strongly that that's not the question you ask. You don't say, what about this guy? You say, what needs to happen for this environment to feel safe to people who have been previously marginalized or victimized by this person? Well, that seems to basically be how Wolverine feels, as he says. This is the fierce monster that I stalk. This terrible creature which I raised to such grand dimensions within my mind. He hardly seems worth the effort. I mean, he does unrepentantly traffic and abuse and sometimes murder children, Wolverine. He's probably worth the effort. He... he's nothing more than a rabid dog. Beaten and cowering, he is as terrified, as helpless, and as innocent as a child. Nope! Maybe it's completely unfair. Maybe he does deserve mercy far more than vengeance. Maybe I really should let him live. Yeah, right. And then Wolverine kills Bullfinch, and they all live happily ever after. The end. Speaking of happy things, let's go to Wolverine the Jungle Adventure. Okay, so this is written by Walter Simonson of The Mighty Thor and Art on X-Factor fame, with pencils by Mike Mignola of Hellboy and that one issue of X-Force we just covered fame. And inks by Bob Wyachek. I don't know as much about him. I feel like the more pertinent Mignola credit at this point is Doctor Doom and Doctor Strange. Oh, man. I know that's not X-relevant really much at all, but maybe we could cover it anyway for some reason. I don't know. Oh, it's so fun. Like, maybe maybe we can, I don't know, maybe we can make it a special or create a Patreon milestone or something around it. Anyway, the jungle adventure from this amazing creative team opens up with an old man in a tiger's skin telling his tale around a fire with shadows flickering high on the cave walls around him. Listen, O oh people of the tribe of fire, as I sing of the coming of the Son of Heaven, how he dropped from the sky touched his chosen people, and flew back to his home again. The tale of his bravery is the heritage of his clan, and it shall never be forgotten. 
I do love the mythic feel of this as it opens up, and we see a flashback now to the story that the old guy is telling, presumably. There are a tribe of sort of Neanderthal, caveman-looking folks gathering around the Stone of Silence with a cigarette lighter set respectfully atop it. Okay, so first of all, those are not Neanderthals, those are just Mignola people. Uh, that is true. Mike Mignola does draw like Mike Mignola. The, the physical features that make you go Neanderthal are, are art-style things. Um, they, don't, they don't actually live in caves. They live in the jungle. They are ritualistic. They are minimally attired. Um, and they are definitely worshipping a cigarette lighter, which made me think this was going to be a cargo cult story, which I was kind of excited about because cargo cults are really fascinating. It, well, it kind of is because suddenly an ultralight plane lands, or as they call it, a honker, which is their name for dinosaurs. More on that very much later. And a bomber jacket clad Logan gets out, grabs a lighter, and lights a cigarette with it. Okay, I mean, maybe we should just talk about the honker thing now because it's so good. I love that they call dinosaurs and airplanes honkers. I love this so much. And I am, in fact, recording this episode beside a toy parasaurolophus, the honkiest of honkers beside me, and it's a very bad model, so it sort of has weird kissy lips. It, it just wants to kiss. It's a very affectionate Parasaurolophus. So Parasaurolophuses are actually my favorite dinosaurs because they always just look really deeply baffled. That's reasonable. Yeah. So the lighter, anyway, it says to Logan from Nick, it's got the shield logo, and Logan says he's been looking for it for weeks. They say that it came from the sky. Whoa, 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 whoa. Go, go back a step. He's been looking for it for weeks. This is, this is not the lighter you're picturing if you haven't read this. This is not a Zippo. It's not, it's not, you know, the fuck communism lighter from Preacher or anything like that. This is a shitty green plastic bick on which Nick appears to have written with a marker to Logan from Nick. Nick Fury's kind of a cheapskate, I guess. But for me, I mean, we have these people worshipping an artifact that fell from a, a society with greater technology that they don't fully understand, hence calling airplanes honkers. To me, this seems pretty cargo cult. And maybe, okay, Jay, you know a lot more about cargo cults than I do. You want to do a brief rundown? Okay, so a cargo cult is what happens when you have a brief intersection between advanced technology and an isolated civilization that has had no prior contact for it and has no cultural paradigm to explain it. There were a lot of them that sprung up in a specific archipelago called Micronesia, um, in particular around the Second World War, because you had a lot of planes randomly coming down and pilots being like, here, have some cigarettes and electrical pieces. I'm just going to take back off now. And you get these, these things worked into the cosmology and the religions of the local people. If you want an interesting introduction to these, there's a novel called Island of the Sequent Love Nun by Christopher Moore that's really well-researched. Um, yes. And, and is, is an interesting, um, really interesting and, and pretty funny and pretty well-written look at, at, at one specific take on a cargo cult and, and a couple Americans who decide to horrifically exploit them and then a lot of hijinks that ensue. There's, I'll, I'll, put, I'll stick some links to, to more information on them in the as mentioned. They're really interesting. Um, yeah, it's sort of the, the very loose framework for the, the beginning of the movie that gods must be crazy as well, if, if you want that. But again, like I feel like most of the representations you're going to find of these, and even the name cargo cults, are from a really paternalistic, colonialist perspective to the point that I have trouble recommending them. But they are, they are a really interesting phenomenon. And uh, still, I think, worth reading up on if you get the chance. Excellent. And thank you. 
So Logan doesn't have much time to reflect on the socio-political implications of colonialist takes on belief because suddenly a huge fur-clad masked cave person approaches. I don't know why you keep calling them cave people. They live in the jungle. Because Mignola draws them like cave people. Um, I love, I love, I love this character. This is my favorite character in the story. And their opening line is, is just gold. This is madness. No child of the gods could be so short. And they fight, and it is charming, and they grow to respect each other, and the banter is so good. Like, we talked about how DeFalco's Logan sounds a little, you know, DeFalco-y. Simonson's Logan sounds a little Simonson-y, and I have no complaints here. That's the thing. Simonson-y is, like, just another word to say good with, like, pulp overtones. You're not so bad yourself, bub. So listen up, and I'll give you a little boxing lesson. Lead with your left, jab, feint, jab, jab, and whammo! So Wolverine does do his own sound effects. We do have canonical evidence now. The chieftain whom Logan has defeated is, is named Gak. Logan is now in charge of the tribe, and Gak is fine with that. Gak is pretty much done. And, and turns over the cave, and... Uh, okay, fine, they do have caves. Ha! And then in comes Gak, who removes his mask and his, his big big floofy mantle to reveal a that that he is in fact a lady a tastefully shadowed topless woman with a really rad cave mullet yeah like basically she is gak is basically like if big barda grew up in the savage land that's what you get Yup. and the way mignola draws her is great her features are kind of a cool mix of the uh, okay, fine, not Neanderthali, but maybe just Mignola-y, and also modern beauty, like, she looks like a very attractive example of one of this tribe of Savage Land people. It's great. One of the things I really like about Mignola as an artist, um, consistently, and that you see actually more and more in his later work, here he's, he's still a little bit more in traditional spaces, is that he's capable of drawing women who are interesting looking and who even are attractive but not necessarily pretty. And that yeah. is so rare in comics, especially especially with, with male artists. But it's something I really dig about him. Also, throughout this, and actually throughout the, the X-Force issue that he drew that we covered, I keep on having sort of cognitive dissonance moments because I, I always forget that Mignoli used to draw lips. <laughs> there is that, I suppose. It's and uh, Gak does have some pretty full lips. But I also enjoy that she's much taller than Logan. She's almost as muscular. And that her sexuality is as much a part of her power as is her, like, physical might. This is sexy done right. And Mike Mignola is not an artist I would have really put at the top of the list to do that, but he does it beautifully. Yeah, I mean, I think Barta is actually a really good point of comparison because this is a character who is powerful first, sexy as a byproduct of that and her general sense of ownership and occupancy of her body and space. Yeah. So she's there seeking answers from Logan and also to convince him to stay because her tribe, she thinks, has gotten weak and needs new leadership. Wolverine responds in the universal language, if you know what I mean. Well, yo-ho-ho ho and blow the man down, darling. I think I just forgot the questions. But don't worry, I've still got some cigars left, and I hardly ever accept sacrificial virgins anymore. She responds to this by kissing him. And I really enjoy his look of surprise and his sort of oomph as his mouth is suddenly covered. Um, it, it's great. But anyway, uh, she asks his story and he says, well, you're not going to understand, but maybe if I say it out loud, then I can figure it out myself. So 
Logan was maybe he's maybe he's just going to gesticulate really enthusiastically. I, I sort of want to assume that he he charades this as he's describing it because we're just seeing it in flashbacks. We don't know what he's actually doing. Logan seems like the kind of guy that would do that, especially Logan with a voice like Simonson writes him with. So Logan in this story was in, I don't know, Madripoor, New York City, some big city, seeing a play and he had a note passed to him which said, Logan, I need your help urgently. Behind the theater, Jean Grey. The note doesn't even smell like her, and this is super, super suspicious, but he figures, eh, whatever, he's kind of bored. And instead of Jean Grey, he finds a shadowy figure with caveman grammar and a blaster hand. Okay. They fight. Logan carves a piece of sidewalk up to use as a great big shield for the blaster, which is kind of awesome, and stabs the dude, at which point the dude explodes because he was, in fact, a cyborg. But not just any cyborg, because this cyborg has a smell that Logan recognizes. Earth. Damp. Lizards. Jungle. The four elements. I know that smell. The Savage Land. This Johnny came from the Savage Land. And for a while, everything was peaceful. Until the Lizard Nation attacked. <laughs> so, Gak, hearing the story of how Logan got there, agrees... You are right. I understand nothing of what you say. But I understand enough. And she pinches out the candle. And then they do it. Yay for ladies with sexual agency and also with caveman mullets. Two great tastes that taste great together. I feel like this is the point where we need to click. We, we, we should probably duly inform our listeners that you played Chrono Trigger at an impressionable age. I really, really did. I was always much more of a Luca guy than an Ayla guy, but it's hard to argue with that fur bikini. I mean, unless it's a sapient and talkative fur bikini, I imagine it would be a pretty one-sided argument. Oh, you know what I mean. Anyway, Logan joins the tribe. This is the tribe of fire, and he does all sorts of caveman-y stuff and probably has a lot of caveman-y sex, and one day... He kills a spiny honker with his bare hands. Is that spiny honker a Demetrodon? It looks kind of like a Demetrodon. Eh, close enough. It's, it's a Savage Land dinosaur, which means it's a kind of, sort of, maybe Demetrodon. Well, after killing this spiny honker, listeners, I want you to pause the podcast and just say, either out loud or even under your breath, spiny honker, and I promise your day is going to get, like, at least 1% better. If you are in a context where you can do so, I recommend that you say it in a declamatory way, as if you are calling out a warning or perhaps just announcing one's presence at the Grand Ball. Spiny Honker! Spiny Honker! You have so many Spiny Honker options. But you always have. The Spiny Honker was inside you all along. That sounds hazardous. It does. Also, disturbingly euphemistic? Maybe? I don't know. Maybe we should just move on. So point being, after killing this Spiny Honker, Teehee, with his bare hands, he is initiated fully. After the Spiny Honker murder, Logan is initiated fully into the Tribe of Fire. He gets this ochre war paint painted on him. There's a great big party, and he chooses his new tribe name. And he is entitled to this tribe name, having having successfully faced the Spiny Honker in combat. And we're just going to use that phrase as much as we can, and you really can't blame us for this. But the name that he chooses after his defeat of the Spiny Honker is, you're never going to guess this, the Wolverine. That's not fair. Like, that's that's like me choosing a deed name of Metal Miles at AOL.com. It's a thing I already had in my past. Dude, choose something new. Show some respect for the Tribe of Fire and the Spiny Honker that you Spiny Honker killed and come up with something creative. 
Ooh, ooh. Um, since he's playing out the whole white savior trope, he could he could go with dances with honkers. <laughs> he totally could. But the next day, as the revelry ends, kind of like that one party in 65 million BC where they met Ayla and drank too much soup with her ended, uh, the next day a sad war party returns and say that they lost a man to... The best thing to which you can possibly lose your life. The best words to ever grace an epitaph. The honker of doom. That's right. The honker of doom. And like Logan has a conversation with the elder or the shaman or something, and they just keep saying honker of doom. And I love it. And it's not like a, oh, look how dumb this story is, is they use this dumb phrase. It's, no, look how great this story is. This story is, this is my favorite Wolverine special edition we've done. It's one of my favorite Wolverine stories. At this point, there's, there's, I think, like a good half a page of our notes that's just the phrase honker of doom written out in different ways and like different degrees of italic and bold. I mean, right? Can you blame us? Anyway, there's a brief flashback in the honker of doom is in fact a Tyrannosaurus. It ate some kid and the kid's dad is super mad. He's like, dude, the Wolverine, you were supposed to be this godsend. You're supposed to protect us and you didn't. Screw you, man. And he stabs him. They always call him the Wolverine, not Wolverine, which I appreciate. Um, fortunately, Wolverine is fine. So everyone goes, oh, yay, he's a god after all. It's cool. He's, he, he's our, our short god friend, Wolverine. And Logan takes advantage of his, his newly reaffirmed deityhood to gather the whole tribe together so that they can take down the honker of doom once and for all the honker of, of i can't get over this i can't get over the honker of doom i'm never gonna get over this i i don't think you should i feel like the honker of doom has carved out a place in all of our hearts that sounds very painful but also silly it's also almost exactly what wolverine is subsequently going to do to the honker of doom but anyway, he takes a lot of members of the tribe. They go to hunt the Honker of Doom. And part of what they do is uh, lay down a pit trap. Do you remember in um, that old board game Hero Quest how you could fall into a pit trap and then you could search it for treasure and then you could draw the treasure card for having be it be another pit trap inside the pit trap? No, because there wasn't there wasn't a pit trap treasure card. What you could get was a shallow hole in the pit trap. So it was like, ah, ah. Oh, right. That's right. That makes me so happy. I love that game. We played that game way too much. But the Honker of Doom uh, is much smarter than your average Hero Quest player. It avoids the pit trap, and then Logan draws it away, and there's this great chase scene as Logan runs and, like, dives around branches and vines and shit, and then, like, uh, goes to fight it. It's like a really good Tarzan action scene. Unfortunately, it is cut short because the Honker of Doom snaps Logan up into its Honker of Doom mouth, and then a Honker of Doom swallows him. And holy crap, I mean, God just got eaten. So they're Catholic now. <laughs> right. Gak swears vengeance, but of course, Logan soon cuts his way out. And says, Must have been something he ate. Plot twist. It was a robotic Honker of Doom. If you were thinking, how could this get better? Now you know. Robotic Honker of doom. Honker of robotic doom? Robot honker of doom? I think robotic honker of doom. It's, it's beautiful no matter how you put it. It is. Now, Logan's gonna go after the robotic honker of doom's origin. Apparently it came from this volcano, but his ultralight is gone, and he figures Gak must have taken it to keep him there. She doesn't want any of his accusations, though. Gak does as she pleases the Wolverine. And no one, not even a true son of heaven, tells her what to do. 
And then to prove her point, she pushes over a random caveman. So Logan, uh, sorry, the Wolverine, and three of the tribesmen of fire go on foot, and Mignola draws dinosaurs and volcanoes over the course of their journey, and it's super rad, and I could just look at these pages forever. Can we talk about how Wolverine's an idiot at this point? Because he's, he's going to fight this thing, and he doesn't want to bring Gak because he's concerned for her safety. She, she was chief by right of arms before he beat her in combat. She is literally the best fighter in the tribe. I think Logan's a little bit of a sexist. Man, Logan, fuck you and fuck your paternalism. Seriously. But, you know, at least the comic's still great. So, in Logan goes through a lava tube. He uh, is wearing his Wolverine costume at this point, by the way. Uh, he leaves his guards behind, saying, hey, I'm gonna do this part alone. And indeed, inside the volcano, it's all mechanical-like, complete with a trap door that he falls into. Wait, is the volcano itself a type of honker? Geohonker, perhaps? Lava honker? Lava honker. Yes, and Wolverine can be a claw honker. I like this everything. We're podcast honkers. I mean, we kind of are, I guess. Internet honkers. Internet honkers. That sounds really distasteful, and I don't know why. Anyway. I, I have a fairly clear idea of why. But yeah, let's let's not let's not run with that one. Um we can be we can be, I don't know, expert honkers, comics honkers. This really just all does sound like one big masturbation joke at this point. It's not, though. Because what I'm at least imagining is, like, dinosaurs that just make air horn noises all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I'm imagining it, too. But Wolverine comes to, he wakes up bound, and in this cage, and in front of him, a character that in, at this point in canon he has not yet met. It's Apocalypse. And Apocalypse in a moment of peculiarly ridiculous self-awareness, tells Wolverine, Welcome to my humble abode. And if you'll forgive me, I am required by law to say this. How nice of you to drop in so unexpectedly. I mean, has Apocalypse been into the scotch he got from Warren Pestilence on National Bosses Day last, last October? He seems much jollier than usual. Yes. Yes, he has. Is Bosses Day actually in October? Did you look that up? Of course I looked it up. I'm a responsible podcaster. So Apocalypse explains he's been turning cavemen into custom-designed cyborgs to specifically target certain mutants back in civilization. Logan's going to be great fodder for this. This is a suitably unnecessarily complex villain plot, and I fully approve. Oh, but there's an extra layer of ridiculous to it, to it that we'll get to in a minute. First, Apocalypse realizes that not all is as it should be. There's someone nearby. And as this is an Apocalypse who's really like genre and dialogue trope aware, he calls out... Come out! Come out wherever you are! It is, in fact, Gak, uh, to whom Apocalypse refers as Wolverine's large lady friend, and uh, she bashes into Apocalypse, but it doesn't do much because Apocalypse and Apocalypse decides that, great, he's going to use her for Wolverine's first lethal test. And as Apocalypse carries Gak off, she subtly tosses Logan's lighter at him, and he uses it with his feet to burn his bonds after cutting his boot tops with his claws so he can get barefoot. And it's just this panel-by-panel panel process of how he does this, and it's actually really cool and really gets you into the detail and difficulty of the process. So, I have extremely long and fairly prehensile toes, and I was actually going to sit down and try to figure out how hard it would be to operate a lighter with your bare feet, but then I decided not to. That's 
reasonable. And Logan's had like a couple hundred years to practice. I'm pretty sure that's what he does in all his downtime. So there's a big fight now that Logan's escaped and Logan destroys some of the cyborgs that are still in their sciency Mike Mignola test tubes. And Apocalypse is super mad because like, man, those took forever to make, you dick. Now, within one of the test tubes is the kid who everyone thought had been eaten by the Hogger of Doom. Logan frees the kid, gives him to Gax, says run, and um, decides he's gonna, he is gonna face Apocalypse. When we're done here, bub, you won't be needing any cyborgs. You're gonna be needing an undertaker. Cable would be so proud of your banter, Wolverine. And so they fight, and as they do, Wolverine's cutting the crap out of Apocalypse, and he's just like a robot inside. Now, Apocalypse normally looks pretty robotic, but not this much. I mean, it's just sort of random gears and circuit boards and crap inside him. Well, he's, he's, a, min- he's a Mignola bot, which is its own flavor of thing in the same ways that a Kirby bot is its own flavor of thing. And in addition, this Apocalypse robot is different from his namesake in some other ways, too, specifically with regards to his personal goals. The Earth is the birthright of ordinary humans, wretch. Not a prize to be usurped by late-cutting sports of nature. My sacred trust is to make the world safe again for humans! Mutants shall be destroyed, starting with you! So the robot also is is unaware that he's not the real Apocalypse or that he's a robot. And this shouldn't, I I feel bad about how funny I find this entire scenario. I feel kind of bad for the robot. I mean, he just wants to be a good, like, megalomaniacal supervillain. And now Logan's cutting him into pieces. And that's what Logan does. Logan kills the robot, not actually Apocalypse. And he's looking for clues to figure out, okay, what the hell is up with this place? I mean, there was a honker of doom and there was a robot volcano and then a really confusing Apocalypse. And what he finds is something unexpected, an adamantium skull. Whoa. Whoa. The idea at this point was that Apocalypse was actually the one behind Wolverine's adamantium. Um, It's referenced here, it's referenced in Uncanny X-Men 242, and it's referenced most notably, or rather not directly referenced, in Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X. The voice on the other end of the phone, the voice the professor is talking to that then declines to save the professor when everything goes to shit was supposed to be Apocalypse. Barry Windsor Smith didn't outright state it, but he knew that that was Chris Claremont's intention, and so he left it totally open. This is part of that. Now, the ended up not being the case. I mean, obviously Apocalypse did a lot of things, but he wasn't really part of Weapon X. But later on, after Logan lost his adamantium in Fatal Attractions, Apocalypse was the one to then give him his second round of adamantium. So it all kind of links together. Now, speaking of Apocalypse, Robo-Apocalypse may be gone, but he is replaced by a holographic Apocalypse who shows up to explain The plot, basically, that the robot was in fact a servant, but the lab's radiation messed with his higher logic functions and he got his mission confused. And Apocalypse, who's projecting the hologram, arranged for Logan to be Robo-Apocalypse's next target so that Logan would take Robo-Apocalypse out. Apocalypse then tries to gas Logan out before Logan can fuck with the lab, but Logan takes his not-actually-very-valuable lighter and tosses it in, and the gas, I guess, is very flammable because crack-a-boom! I feel like Nick Fury would be okay with that. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Outside, Gak and the Fire Tribe are waiting. They figure Logan must have died in the explosion. But then, magically, looking like Mary Poppins, 
in, well, maybe one way or two, but not most, Logan appears in his ultralight, which apparently, by the way, Apocalypse took. Gak didn't. Aw. And he blows Gak a kiss and flies away. Sorry about that, Chief. Get it, get it, get it, because Gak's the chief of the tribe now with Logan God again. <laughs> oh, I do. I didn't get it before. Thank you for explaining it. Usually explaining a joke makes it worse, but that time it made it better. Anyway, we go back to the framing story where the old storyteller finishes his tale, saying that Logan returned to the gods, but the tribe of fire will never forget. And in the audience listening to this story, there is there's a part cyborg caveman who I assume is the kid who got rescued. There's also Gak, and with Gak is a baby. Hey, Wolverine has a Savage Land baby just like Colossus. They have something to bond over. Now, the baby is never mentioned again in continuity, but in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, X-Men 2004, there's a character listed named Arista, the son of Logan, who maybe is this kid. And in fact, on, on a forum from a site that got shut down a long time ago, Eric J. Morales, who wrote this entry, said it was indeed his intent to link the two. So, quasi-canonically, this baby is named Arista and is one of Logan's Logan's many, many children. Maybe someday he will meet up with Colossus's random-ass Savage Land kid. Oh, that would be so sweet and nice, assuming they got along. Or maybe, like, they're rivals and then they learn to get along. That could be cool, too. Or maybe they just, like, cross paths in the grocery store and are just like, meh. In the Savage Land grocery store? Yes. It's where, where, you, buy your, where you buy your dinner honkers. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so... Oh, yes, and, and, and we need to continue this motif. So babies, I guess, would be little honkers. Or tiny honkers? I think they'd be... Maybe pink honkers. They'd be lil honkers? It doesn't even sound like a word anymore. Miles, you, you just gotta go back and ground it in its best context. <clears throat> honker of doom. Spiny honker is a strong second place. Anyway, we'll get to questions in a moment because this episode is running a little long, but I just want to say, so Bloody Choices... I think it's it's not the best comic in the world. I do think it's worth reading because it's really entertaining. The Jungle Adventure is goddamn delightful. Yeah, no, The Jungle Adventure is a lot of fun. It feels like an old-school pulp story. Wolverine tends to genre hop when he's having solo adventures, and this is a genre I think he fits in pretty beautifully. Also, Honker of Doom. Just You can't beat that. Speaking of Honkers of Doom, you've got questions. Maddie Pryor asks via Tumblr, Oh, hey Maddie, love your work. Are you guys planning to go to FlameCon this year? Is there somewhere you publish con plans, or is it usually pretty last minute? Well, Maddie, it is funny that you should ask that, because as we record this, we just, just got official confirmation that we are totally going to be at FlameCon this year. We are super excited. We're going to be tabling. Hopefully we're going to be doing a live show. Uh, we will be there all weekend. We will high-five you. Um, we will have... Tons of queer podcast X-Men stuff. I'm, oh God, I'm so excited about this. And Miles, you get to come to FlameCon and you're going to love it. And it's totally our people. It's a really good show. So, so yes, we're going to be at FlameCon. With regards to your other question, it really depends on the convention and its timeline. It, how, how quickly stuff gets announced, how quickly stuff gets confirmed, what the process is for folks like us who are, sort of creators, but in a kind of odd liminal category, just varies wildly. So um, it depends a lot. I will say, though, um, speaking speaking of all of that, I'm going to answer another question that, that Maddie didn't ask, but that we do get asked really regularly that's related, which is um, basically what to do if you want, will, will we come to your local convention? And the answer is, if you want us there, if you want us to come to your local show, to pretty much any show, 
the best way to make that happen, and often the way to make that happen, is to talk to that convention about bringing us out as guests. Um, we don't make a ton of money at conventions. We aren't comics artists. We can't, you know, sell original art or anything like that. Or, or, or uh, and our commissions are not good enough to charge substantial amounts of money for. Um, so that's pretty much the only way it's financially feasible for us to do more shows, especially ones that require a lot of travel. Um, and if you want to do that, let us know. We can happily provide you with blurbs, listener stats, references, etc., for you to convince them that we are cool kids, totally worth you know bringing. But yeah, that's the way to make that happen if it's something that you're after. Yeah, it's a little hard for me sometimes because I have a very finite time off from my day job, but I really love going to different places and meeting listeners and stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, more opportunities. That sounds great to me. We would love to hang out with you. Um, so an anonymous listener on Tumblr asks, Miles, you've mentioned your father's long box of comics. Did you share a relationship over comics in the years since? And how is it now that you're an expert? That is a good question. And I don't think I've talked about that on the show. So it's kind of strange. Like, my father's the one that got me into comics, but he was actively into specifically comics, not just comics properties, for a pretty finite period of time. When he was younger, up until somewhere around 1988 or 1989, or maybe even 1990, when the collection he gave me ended. Since then, I mean, he's bought a tra some trade paperbacks here and there. That's a common gift I get him on, on various holidays. But at this point, my X-Men knowledge uh, is significantly greater than his just because I've focused on so much of it and I've kept going, reading through the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s and stuff like that. Um, I've also reread a lot of stuff and he mostly remembers it from the first time he read it. So in that regard, like he got me started and then I just sort of kept going. Um, it's actually reversed with TV. I got him kind of started watching sci-fi fantasy genre stuff with uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Battlestar Galactica. And now that's what he spends a lot of his time doing. And I barely watch television at all because like I'm doing, you know, podcast stuff and stuff like that. Um, that said, he does think it's really awesome that this show exists. And he's very tickled by the fact that, you know, what he was interested in when I was younger was very much the origin of that. So, you know, I still tell him about all the stuff we're covering in our interviews and all the conventions we go to. And um, he's, he's a great big fan of that. So that said, though, um, we do both watch things like The Gifted and Legion and all the various Marvel movies, so we totally geek out over that stuff, and it's really cool kind of being on the same page as far as some comic book and X-Men stuff with him. So thank you, things that come onto screens, for enabling us to have those conversations. It's really nice. My dad's a pretty cool guy. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement from a range of fictional characters and entities on the show. The mic today, I believe, goes to either Apocalypse or a robotic duplicate of him. I'm not sure which, but either way, have at. Welcome to my humble abode, Cody Wickman. This volcano lair is dedicated to Apocalypse's sacred trust is raison d'etre the creation of an invincible army of duplicates of the very pinnacle of human evolution you shall be honored to sacrifice your genetic structure to this grand project step past my robotic dinosaurs and into the light mickman and we shall rectify fate's foolish plan the earth shall be claimed by the righteous fury of 1,000 perfectly engineered clones of Jim Walsh. And we'll take it from there to the angry Claremontian narrator. Are you man or animal, Jared Grossman? You've asked yourself again and again and come to no solid conclusion. After all, what is a man aside from a beast waiting to be unleashed or perhaps a miserable little pile of secrets? 
Given a few different choices or a stiff dose of knockout gas, who knows? You might have become Tom DeFalco or, still worse, Ben Pachter. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by production honker Matt Hunter. New episodes come on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, at explainthexmen.com, and on the Honker of Doom. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra Honker content, including visual Honker companions for every episode. Our show is 100% Honker supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we are back to Excalibur. Wait, didn't we just do Excalibur? We didn't do the special editions. There's, there's a lot of Excalibur, isn't there? There really, really is. I didn't realize this was a sad occasion. I am your sister in grief.